Hey everybody, welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 70 here, and I've got a special guest to be joining me in a minute, and we're going to talk really about choosing lumber for workbenches. You guys might remember um, many episodes ago, I brought up the idea that if you have a specific project that you want to discuss lumber selection for, that I welcome you on the show. And Alex is looking to build a workbench, and it's one thing woodworkers love to talk about is workbenches. So I figured it would be a good time to bring him on the show. Before I do that, I want to give the obligatory, much appreciated thanks to all the patrons who support this show. If you want to be a patron of Lumber Update, go to patreon.com slash lumber update and whatever, a dollar a month, a dollar a year, whatever you want to do, really appreciate it and helps keep the show going. So without me rambling on anymore, let's jump right into uh, my interview with Alex. Joining me today is Alex Adams. Alex hails from Nebraska, from the Cornhusker State. So despite my University of Colorado alumni status, I will permit him to be on the show. Are, are you a Husker grad, Alex? Yes, I did go to the University of Nebraska. Okay. All right. We're going to put those put those things aside. Um, but Alex is actually uh, a hand tool school member. Um, that's how we first got to know one another. And um, he is about to build a workbench. And basically was... The idea was um, wanting to procure a bunch of different species of lumber with the idea of, Hey, while I'm building a workbench, I might as well get some practice with a variety of species of wood. So, uh, we thought, Hey, why not come on the lumber update? Cause listeners, you may remember, I've kind of thrown this out as an open invitation. Anybody who has a project on their bench or maybe the bench is the project and are curious about choosing the right lumber, we can get real technical and we can talk about, uh, the, the right species for that particular project. So that's what we're going to do today. So that being said, Alex, um, tell the folks about yourself. How did you come to woodworking? How long have you been in it? And um, maybe tell us a little bit about your plans for your workbench. Okay. Well, I've always liked building stuff and creating as a kid, um, you know, mostly with Legos or boards and nails or whatever I could find or get my hands on. Um, but my first kind of formal woodworking stuff was in a shop class in middle school. We made this clock that had some storage in it. So that was kind of my first exposure. Um, but that desire to create and build uh, led me to study mechanical engineering, like you had said earlier, at the University of Nebraska. And I learned a lot more okay. about you know design, learning about material properties, mechanical properties uh, while I was there. And I credit a lot of my background in learning how to design and build things with the time that I spent designing surgical robots in a surgical robots um, lab, uh, because in that space, you had to assemble and make everything that you designed. So you learn very quickly how to make stuff easy to assemble, you know, grinding something down for an hour or two, you learn to tolerance a lot better. Um, and so I began to understand that needing to know your material and the limitations of the tools that can actually form that material is, is very important. You know, just like the, you know, stuff that's made out of aluminum versus stainless steel, you know, things are going to be a lot more expensive with stainless steel because it's just so much harder and you need sharper, harder tools and you're going to break more tools uh, making stuff. So it's just more expensive. Uh, but then fast right. forward to this last year, um, we were clearing out a couple of trees in our backyard to kind of open up the space because it was kind of small. And I didn't want the wood to go to waste. And so what I did was watch some YouTube videos, found an electric chainsaw, uh, an off-brand Alaskan sawmill, and started milling up some boards. 
And as I was going through this process of making them into boards, trying to make them into charcuterie boards for um, friends as well as family, you know, I kept on hitting roadblock after roadblock, you know, lots of rookie mistakes, not realizing it realizing that I had to actually dry wood. And then when I dried the wood, I most definitely case hardened it. Um, and about out of the 30 board feet or so out of the uh, crab apple tree that I had uh, milled up, I only got about one foot length that was actually clear of cracks or anything, only to find out later on that crab apple wood is notorious for, for cracking. Um, but yeah. Fruit wood in general, by the way. Any, I mean, crab apple is, I guess, tech, yeah, it's still a fruit wood, but fruit woods in general are really prone to cracking just because they're so dense and uh, they right, have a right. fair amount yeah, so of um, I went down extractives that. in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I went down the, the rabbit hole of YouTube videos as I've been learning stuff on the fly. And, you know, I learned stuff, but it was very time intensive, kind of piecing together all, all this information from from everywhere. And then, you know, I was looking for better resources to, uh, you know, figure stuff out and not make as many mistakes. And that's kind of how I came across the Wood Talk and Lumber Update podcast, um, which ultimately led me to enroll in the hand tool school, as you had mentioned earlier, um, because I was looking to be in that environment where I could learn from other people who had been through this already to kind of expedite the process of uh learning and and creating so that kind of brought me to where we are now as you had mentioned where now i'm looking to build that first workbench and learn kind of what woods i actually like or maybe don't like to work with in the future Mm -hmm. that makes sense I, i am curious going back a little bit you used an alaskan mill with an electric chainsaw yes Interesting. I, I, the thought never. What's what's the bar length on the electric chainsaw? Eighteen inches. It's kind of crazy to think because I have an electric chainsaw myself. I can't remember the bar length. It's not eighteen inches. It's it's a little guy. It's really meant for like, you know, tr- pruning trees more than anything else. It's slightly bigger than one of those big pruning saws on a stick. But uh, the thought it never occurred to me to employ it in an Alaskan mill. It's kind of interesting because that thinking going electric with an Alaskan mill, certainly it's going to have some limitations, but at the same time that lowers the, the, the barrier to entry into milling your own lumber quite, a, quite substantially. I think. Yeah. Cause it was only a, like, like a hundred dollar chainsaw, like on a black Friday deal and right. it's, and it's corded. Um, so I don't have to worry about constantly charging batteries or filling up gas or anything. You know, there are yeah. a couple of downsides to it. I do need to, um, add in some auxiliary, lubrication with oil into the bar because it doesn't flow very well with it but you know you kind of get what yeah. you pay for you know for a hundred bucks oh, yeah. on the chainsaw mill a special ripping chain for another 30 bucks and then i think it was like 70 bucks for my off-brand alaskan chainsaw mill i had to make some modifications to it to make it work so right you know for under i could just see that 200 as, 300 bucks. you know certainly if you've got you know eight foot trunks um and things like that, that's not quite the right thing. But, you know, I run into a lot of instances and I, I hear from a lot of people who, um, you know, get logs, pick up a log off the side of the road or they've had a tree removed and it's already been bucked. So a lot of times it's 24, 36 inch long rounds. And for something like that, you know, I can remember back when I had a bandsaw, breaking things down on a bandsaw, that was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> on a three quarter horsepower uh, riser block bandsaw, <laughs> that didn't work real well. Mm-hmm. But I could actually see employing something like an Alaskan mill, um, you know, for, for, for like cutting out Windsor chair seat blanks or something like that, 
when I've got a, uh, I've already bucked the log to like 30 inches long, uh, which is way longer than I would need. You know, the length of the log translates to the width of the Windsor chair seat in that point. Um, that could actually be a really interesting idea. I currently split them, um, but there's a fair amount of waste when you're trying to split out like mm-hmm. uh, an eight to 10 quarter thick blank. Because uh, when you split, you're generally ending up with wedged shape pieces, you know, pie shapes. Yeah. Um, so trying to split out a, a parallel sided blank, first of all, is very difficult to do. But at the same time, you know, you end up with some sort of a wedge shape and there's a fair amount of waste there. So that's an instance where, you know, in the Windsor chair seat, it doesn't need to be riven. It doesn't, its strength doesn't rely upon, you know, the, the continuous grain fibers. You're not bending it. You're not carving it really, really narrow or anything like that. So yeah, sorry, I'm taking us off topic, but it just kind of, I don't know why I never thought about that, but it kind of opens up the whole idea of milling your own lumber, at least on a smaller scale. You know, I'm sure it's probably a gateway drug <laughs> and it will lead you to, okay, now I'm going to start milling this eight foot tree or whatever. But that's the other thing is when you start talking about eight foot long logs and they're massively heavy. So then you have to have equipment to move it and, and maybe a trailer and, 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 you know, it can get real dangerous real fast because now you're pushing around tons of, of weight. So, huh. Anyway, kind of completely took us off topic there, but it, it is kind of a, a, I don't know, kind of exciting to think that it can be a lot more accessible that way. Definitely. So anyway, I interrupted your tra- your, uh, <laughs> your story there. <laughs> what I am curious about is you're certainly not the first engineer to join the hand tool school. Um, it is very interesting to understand the structure and how it works. Um, I actually, uh, in addition to a music degree, I actually have a physics degree. So there's a fair amount of technical scientific brain, um, whether, whether I choose to admit it or not. Um, and, and what I, I discovered is the, um, understanding kind of the, the structure of how just in general wood is put together really helped me to understand the physics of woodworking. It's a wedge, you know, it's really it. <laughs> All blades are some sort of a wedge and you, you can access more like a cutting knife or more like a splitting wedge, dependent upon the size of the bite, the bevel on the on the, the wedge, or et cetera. And being able to translate that to specific species and how those technical properties vary from say white oak to red oak or to maple, and to understand now what's going to happen when I introduce a wedge to this particular structure. Uh, what happens if I skew that wedge? What happens if I, you know, sharply tap on the wedge or lightly tap on the wedge? And, and that actually really, I think, what drew me into hand tools because I couldn't really feel that with a power tool. You know, I was machining the wood. I wasn't really working the wood. And, mm-hmm. and, and please don't get me wrong, power tool folks. You're still working wood before you start sending me nasty letters. But the 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 low horsepower, the total lack of torque, and and the low RPM that is hand tool woodworking really allows you to kind of feel the structure and and what you're doing, how you're unzipping those fibers and things. It's really so. I I'm, I'm saying all of this to say I, I actually think I can kind of understand. Um, where you're coming from on that side of things, especially with a strong material science background. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like you had said, having that tactile feedback gives you a lot more information to work with, to, you know, Mm -hmm. figure out how you need to adjust and work with this organic material. That's also why I like fly fishing is because, you know, instead of fishing with, you know, 
a lure and a bobber where you're just waiting for it to go down with fly fishing you know you get the excitement of seeing the fish hit the fly and immediately get that feedback on the line of you know they're actually there i need to react so Mm -hmm. that i I enjoy that instant tactile feedback that i you know get when woodworking sure that and the casting's a lot more fun yeah it it, it makes it a little (laughs) bit more relaxing I was going to say that we're going to turn this into a fly fishing show real quick. Now tell me, what are your thoughts on Tenkara? No, don't, don't tell me that. Let's, let's talk about, let's talk about workbenches. Cause ultimately that's really what, what we're talking about. You talk to uh, 10 woodworkers and you will find 12 of them want to talk about workbenches. So it just, there just doesn't seem to be any end. Even if you have a workbench, perfectly happy with your workbench, people still want to talk about workbenches. So essentially the thesis, if you will, of this episode is you're going to build a workbench. And one of your goals in building that workbench is to get exposure to a bunch of different species of wood. So tell me about the workbench. What what kind of bench are you building? What are, what are your thoughts, dreams, hopes, et cetera, for that bench? Right. Yeah. So it's the workbench that is presented in the hand hand tool school that has the split top you know it's got the four by fours for structure and there's really not a lot to it other than that and then the you know the aprons on the side so there's not you know so for listeners it's essentially it's essentially a nicholson style workbench it's got wide aprons um you know four legs couple mortise and tenons and then there's a split top for no other reason than the fact that we're using kind of off the shelf lumber. So I built it using um, construction materials, two by 12s, four by fours, um, and two by 12. So you use two by 12s for the aprons, two two by 12s for the top, um, and four by fours for the legs and stretchers. And, you know, there was no other reason for the split top other than the fact that we could put a planing beam down the middle. So it's, it's a relatively simple design. It's a design that's been around for several hundred years, um, highly, highly functional. So your thought, Alex, is to, um, well, yours is going to be dressed up a lot more than mine since I just use construction lumber. Most definitely. Um, and uh, what are your thoughts species-wise? Like right now, what are you thinking? What I want to make it out of are local species of trees that I can find here in Nebraska. I've actually gone out and um, found a couple of sawmills where I can get locally sourced and milled material um, because I want to start making more things out of locally sourced materials to kind of keep that local economy going. Um, and in mm-hmm. addition to that, I'm, you know, I work part-time at a furniture store and they've seen a couple of things that I made and they're interested in selling some of that in the store. And so that idea of selling something that's locally sourced, locally made kind of factors into this as well. So getting practice with those local materials that I have access to that are also probably a little bit more affordable than stuff that would need to get, you know, shipped in from different locations. So there's a couple of different angles there. Well, and, and I think everybody um, is interested in the, the locally sourced idea, but I also think that lately, lately there has definitely been a shift back towards domestics. I mean, I said this in my predictions for 2022 is domestics are going to play a larger role. Um, but I think in general, certainly the rising cost of lumber well before COVID, um, rising cost of exotics due to any number of things, but then environmental concerns and things like that have driven a lot of people to look for locally sourced. And 
what's a little sad is what when there was so much push towards these you know wonderful luxurious exotics we kind of lost sight of just the incredible diversity of wood species that we have here in north america and there's a lot of domestics like you can again we'll say we'll talk to 10 woodworkers you know name five species of wood and you know the number of exotics that they name in many instances outnumbers the domestics because we have maple oak cherry and walnut and that's kind of like what most people think of but there's this whole variety of you know different types of oak and different types of maple and, and sycamore and catalpa and hackberry and hickories and just amazing um, domestic species that don't get any press. So the more you can look locally sourced, the more you might actually be able to tap into some of those cool things. So so what are you finding? What What is local in Nebraska? Yeah, so the, the one sawmill that I'll probably be getting most of it from you know, they, they've got a pretty simple pricing structure and kind of in their entry level stuff, they've got ash, elm, Kentucky coffee, hickory, uh, silver maple, sycamore, locust, mulberry, pine, catalpa. Um, then in their, you know, medium category of price, there's red and white oak, eastern red cedar, hackberry. Um, you know, they've got the quarter sawn sycamore in there. And then in their higher dollar amount is the you know the walnut and the cherry so just in seeing that there's a huge variety just to pick from and they even have more stuff that occasionally comes in um, especially with the other sawmill that i went and saw um they had osage orange um Mm -hmm. there that i wasn't expecting to see something like that but you know when people plant trees you know that aren't necessarily one that's local that area you kind of you occasionally come across interesting um tree species you wouldn't expect like they're one of the trees that i cut down in my backyard is a bald cypress i found out um after searching really? for a while yeah I, I, we think it's because the one of the previous owners of the house was from the south and so it kind of makes mm-hmm. sense like maybe she planted it because she liked those trees and it made her think of home maybe so that that was kind of a surprise to me because originally i thought it was some kind of cedar but i was way off are you in a um is your neighborhood in any kind of floodplain no, like how close are not. you to? We're we're on we're kind of we're kind of on a hill actually. We're on the the side of town that's a little bit higher. I didn't think bald cypress would grow out out in the dry you know arid high desert. Maybe maybe I'm getting my cypresses mixed up. But still, that's that's pretty cool. Fun species to work with too. It's from a from a softwood perspective. It's a uh, um, very interesting to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, Kentucky coffee tree, a lot of fun. I've only ever turned that. Um, but that's beautiful. It, it's got a lot of um, just variation from one board to the other. How dark? How dark is it? Kind of looks like cherry at first glance. It kind of looks like cherry. Like if you were to glance at it, you know, quickly move on, you might think it was cherry. But I find that the early and late growth bands are much more pronounced. Mm. Um, you know, so you get more kind of striping and striation. I mean, it is a, I guess I would call it semi-ring porous. I mean, it's definitely as larger pores than cherry, so you do get some striping into it, but um, it's got a real kind of honey brown color to it. Um, less red like cherry and more honey colored, which is kind of nice. Um, that Again, that's a species that gets very little press. Most of the time when you see it, it's in turning blanks. You, know, you see a lot of pen blanks and, and like peppermill type blanks made out of it. Um, and to tell you the truth, I don't know too much about the tree, Maybe the tree itself is not very large. 
as we are sitting here, I'm waiting. Yep, Wood Database is pulling it up right now. Uh, tree size. No, it's a big tree. So there goes that theory. <laughs> I was going to say, it's a two to three foot trunk diameter, 100 foot tall tree. So no, that's not it at all. But yeah, still um, interesting. Um, Hackberry is another one you get out there a fair bit, I think. Um, have you run into that in any of these mills? Yeah, so Hackberry is one. They actually have a lot of spalted Hackberry too, which is what I'm particularly yeah, I don't think there's really any other kind. Hackberry spalt. Hackberry is very much like holly and that it starts to stain like almost immediately. Um, it stains very, very easily. It's very, uh, um, uh, it's kind of known for that. So um, <laughs> to say spalted hackberry is almost redundant. It <laughs> pretty much all is, um, but it's, it's really cool. It takes on kind of this creamy color and then a gray color at the same time. Um, totally different look, but also I think actually kind of really in vogue when you look at some of like the, uh, the current styles of like weathered lumber or whitewashed type appeal. Um, Hackberry kind of already has that look. It's like, it's, it's like hickory that's been whitewashed or something like that. It's kind of cool. Um, again, that's one that I haven't worked with a whole lot. I have like three pieces, I think in my entire woodworking career. Um, don't get a lot of that out my way. So, um, well, let, let's, let's talk about this. So we're going to build a workbench. You essentially need legs, you need some stretchers, uh, you need aprons, and you need a top. And of course, stretchers, braces that run from apron to apron just to kind of build kind of a torsion box, anti-racking type structure underneath the top. So um, right off the bat, functionally speaking, because the, uh, the the thickness of the boards we're dealing with, in, in my design, the legs are made out of four by four. So they're three and a half-ish by three and a half-ish. Uh, actual dimensions top is is two by 12 so anywhere from one and a half to one and three quarter actual thickness same thing with the aprons so and with the aprons being almost 12 inches wide and being kind of turned on edge so the wide face is is facing out that provides a massive amount of stiffness to the entire structure so um, and because everything is is around two inches thick a little bit less in areas and thicker in the legs you're going to get a very, very stiff, rigid structure. Um, my design uses three braces that run from apron to apron. So it, it, it's, it's heavy, first of all, because you've you got a lot of, of thicker lumber in there. But because there's quite a bit of bracing underneath the top, you don't really need to worry too much about any of the technical properties of wood. You don't really need to pay attention to the stiffness or the bending strength, maybe the hardness. Um, and, and, and this goes, I think, kind of across the board with workbenches. Even if you're building something like a Rubo design where there is no wide apron, you know, it's it, there's a span there. And in many instances, you might have a five or six foot span between the legs. But the Rubo design has like a four inch thick top. So the stiffness that comes out of a four inch thick slab, whether it's a laminated slab or solid slab or whatever, is so high that you're going to get zero deflection. So... In workbenches, because the material we start with is relatively thick, if you were building a workbench out of three-quarter inch, you know, S2S material, that might be a different story. And we might have to think a little bit more about what the stiffness and thing is. So all that to say, um, functionally, structurally, I think no matter what you choose, you're going to have a rigid, strong workbench. 
the one thing we might look at would be the hardness. And there are two schools of thought here. You know, you build a workbench out of something really stout, really hard, so it doesn't, you know, you don't bang up your workbench. Then the other school of thought is, well, you should build that out of something softer than the wood you normally work with because you don't want your workbench denting your project, right? It's okay to dent your workbench. You know, we're going to spill blood on our workbench. Let's be real. <laughs> um, at least I have. <laughs> and a lot of finish. And, and I've got holes drilled in it by accident all over the place. It's a workbench. It gets beat up. Um, but I don't want to beat up, you know, this nice, you know, box I'm building or this chest of drawers I'm building. So there is that thought that, you know, you want it to be so that it won't ding up your project. I fall in the former. I would rather the workbench be hard and, and durable so that I'm not like splintering it and chipping parts off. And if I'm worried about damaging my actual project, um, that's usually later in the project, like when I'm preparing for finish or something. And if necessary, I will put something down, um, you know, between the bench and, and, and the top. Um, things happen. You know, we just learn how to fix them. I've worked on workbenches made out of northeastern white pine. I've worked out of workbenches made out of western red cedar, uh, Atlantic cedar. You know, so we're talking Janka hardnesses of under 400 foot pounds. Um, I've worked on a cherry workbench at about 800 Janka. Um, I have an ash work Rubo, which is around 1200. Um, I have a Douglas fir workbench that hovers around seven, 800 Janka. Uh, Douglas fir is dramatically different hardness from early wood to, to, to late wood. So I tend to think of my Douglas fir workbench being at least as hard as my ash workbench. Um, and I've never had issues where it's damaged my project. I have had many issues where I have dinged the edge, you know, the, the, like the leading edge of the workbench or dropped something metallic or whatever that is, that is dented the edge of it. If that were a softer wood, it wouldn't have dented, it would have splintered um, and, and caused more problems. The Western Red Cedar workbench that I worked on um, at the Stepping Stone Museum for years was just a mass of splinters. Um, it really got beat up. Now, granted, this bench was 80, 85 years old, um, but there was also uh, like a continental um, Hungarian it was a Hungarian cabinet maker from 1860 something. And I worked on his European beach workbench and it was, you know, it was old. It was worn down in places, but it was not splintery in the slightest. It was more rounded over like where you, you could see where the cabinet maker used to stand a lot and we used to kind of like lean. And there was like this slight depression there. Um, you could even kind of make out like a palm print. It was kind of crazy, but it was as sound and as sturdy as probably the day it was built. And I think that's where the softness issue of building out of something like cedar, not only is the top getting dented, but your junction between like your tenon shoulders and the leg is deforming over time. And mm -hmm. I think that's where a lot of the racking and rocking may come from. So really, I think the guidance um, for a workbench is something that's going to be relatively hard. Um, you know, that being said, I built my orientation workbench out of construction pine, um, knowing full well that it might not last as long. I think it will probably last 10 years, um, before, you know, if I worked on it solidly for 10 years, it would probably be kind of beat up and might be a little rickety at that point. But 
that was the whole idea. That's why I call it the orientation workbench. Mm-hmm. It's kind of your first bench. Um, so let's just kind of push that aside, knowing that really any species that you choose, we're talking hardwoods at this point. At least you've been talking about hardwoods. Mm-hmm. I don't think you're going to run into any issues with the technical properties not being able to stand up to the stress that you're going to um, put on it um, while building whatever it is at your workbench. So have you got any kind of ideas of, well, first of all, like how many species do you want to incorporate into this bench? What, what's your, your thoughts there? You know, I was kind of thinking maybe four, five, if we're, you know, feeling adventurous. Um, okay. Cause the, cause the idea that I had for the top was that I know I like to film what I'm working on, just kind of some, not any high quality stuff, but just kind of, you know, just to kind of document what I'm doing. And so I'd, I'd like to have one that's one side of it since it's split top be dark and then the other side to be light. So depending on what I'm working on, there's some contrast there. So it's easy to pick up on the, in the video. Um, okay. So when, when it comes to like something that's darker, when it comes to any of these local uh, wood species that I can get, I can easily get my hands on walnut. So I think I'm pretty set on having walnut on one side, but it's the other side that is the, you know, the lighter side of that bench where it's, I'm I'm still trying to figure out what I might go with for, for that side. Um, and then I, I actually wonder if walnut's a good idea. It might be too dark. Really? Um, I, I think, I think you might be better off. Well, let's just, let's, back up and say the other side should be light. Um, first and foremost, um, setting up a hand plane to work. A lot of times you will turn it upside down and sight from the toe down along the blade, you know, and, and you'll adjust the lateral adjuster in order to get the blade straight in there. If you try to do that against a dark background, you're going to go nuts. You need a nice white light background in order to be able to see the blade well because what happens is that that steel sole i suppose if it were a wooden plane it would be a slightly different story but the the sole of the plane is already somewhat dark um, and the reflection and everything kind of makes it look darker as you're sighting along it so having a light background really allows you to see the iron so i would suggest the side that well i mean benches if you put it in the middle of the room you can work all the way around it but the side that you would normally work on should be a lighter wood um behind that i think you want more of like a darker like an uh, like an oaky brown rather than a walnut brown rather than going all the way to chocolate brown go to like khaki or 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 tan just because you tend to lose stuff on a really dark bench it also sucks up the light um it can be really hard it can be really hard to discern the difference. Plus, I think the contrast, well, first of all, from a filming perspective, the contrast from a, just say like a maple front to a walnut back is going to be so hard that the camera may have, may struggle a bit. I also mm-hmm. think that that really, really dark brown, I, I went through a walnut period for a while where just about everything I built was in walnut. Still my favorite species of wood, but it became really hard after a while to kind of see details and see what was going on because everything was just so dark and it just sucks up the light. So I, I, I feel like you might go too dark to go walnut. Um, and you might look more along the lines of, 
Well, you could go red-ish, you know, that may be where the coffee tree could come in. Or, um, you know, you could even use the gray side of hackberry um, to do that. The only problem there is you might end up with a pretty variegated color. Getting a consistent gray hackberry might be a little difficult. I would, I would, I would choose what you're going to do for the front first and then look for more of a complement rather than a contrast. Mm. Yeah, it probably doesn't help that I'm in a dingy basement too. (laughs) I need more lights. Yeah, Yeah, you will be surprised how much it will like turn into an event horizon and you just won't, you'll lose stuff. Um, It sounds silly, but it's really surprising um, how much light is reflected off the workbench, uh, especially if it's in the middle of the room. I just think that might be a bit too dark. Um, I know um, Mark Spagnola when he was trying to do the same thing with contrast, and he put the stain on his workbench. Uh, he complained of the same thing. It was just so dark um, that it, it, it was actually difficult to see things. So um, oak, like the like the brown side of oak, like a white oak, would be an interesting contrast or complement, I should say. Um, you could go even darker than that. I think. Um, well, what are, what are some of the, can you just list off some of the local stuff that you're seeing? Uh, stuff that they usually have a lot of, they've got a lot of ash, a lot of hickory, uh, that, uh, I can't remember if it's silver or red maple. It's, it's definitely the soft maple. Um, a lot red of maple. oak, uh, we had already mentioned the walnut already. I know those ones and, and the, I mean, we're probably not going to use the Eastern red cedar, but they've got a lot of that, um, around in the area it's too soft yeah too soft um also really uh really oily um which i don't know shouldn't be too much of an issue but um i don't know i feel like i would get a headache working around like aromatic cedar which is really what we're talking about um like all the time Mm -hmm. like being shoved in a cedar chest for your entire life in the in the workshop that might be a bit of a problem but i wouldn't have to worry Um, about bugs then (laughs) <laughs> that'd be, true that'd be that'd be one upside <laughs> but yeah true. Too, too many downsides um, though do you know what kind of hickories you're getting is there anything more specific than hickory or, or I, s- from what i understood uh, i know that they he, the guy that i talked to at the sawmill i know that they have pecan um mm-hmm. and i think the other variety they have i think it's bitternut i think is the okay. variety of hickory because that actually might be a good option um it's a it's a darker brown um you're getting ash in fact i think you actually have some ash logs now don't you yes i picked up some ash logs this weekend and i'm planning on riving them soon so i I might have depending on how that goes i might have ash we'll see how good my riving skills actually are but i i think they 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 might might be able to get some four by fours out of that because some of them are i think about 24 inches in diameter. So I might be able to get some legs out of that in ash. I think, I think choosing something like soft maple for the front part of your workbench, the front half of your workbench and something like a a pecan or, um, or any of the, whatever hickories they have, but Mm -hmm. um, bitternut certainly is going to be a little bit browner, um, than, than some of the other varieties I get out my way. Um, that I think would be, certainly you're going to have two species there that are hard. Um, soft maple being around 850 Janka. Um, and then the 
pecan, I want to say, is 12 or 1300. It's up there. Um, so both of those would end up being quite strong. You could also use hard maple if you want, you know, 1400 Janko hardness on the front, um, or ash at around 1200. But I also think, um, having worked on that uh, European beach workbench for so long, the really tight, close, tiny pore structure of something like maple or beech was really nice. I work on an ash bench now, and ash has a structure very much like red oak, you know, big, wide open ring porous wood. And it's it's fine, but it, it's certainly those those open grain channels sometimes really hang on to the dust and sometimes can just, I, I'd just put it this way. Sometimes I wish I had a slightly smoother bench top. It's not that my bench is like ridiculously not smooth, but um, having that really smooth surface caused by a diffuse porous wood could be kind of nice. So something like, you know, soft maple or hard maple up front would probably be, I think, a little better than than going with ash um, on the top anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the legs, you know, we're talking about larger, you know, four by four size legs. I mean, heck, the bench, that's the nice thing about that bench is you can make it whatever size you want. You know, if you if you arrive at a piece and it's going to be more of a five by five, hey, that's just more mass. It's going to make the bench more stable. Um, so if you, you've got, you know, bucked log rounds that are, you know, of, of around that length, um, it should be relatively successful in arriving on a piece that could give you, you know, a good size leg. Um, what what what's the diameter of these ash logs that you're that you have? They kind of vary from about eighteen to twenty four inches. Most of them, um, I did actually okay. pick up. They had a couple of silver maple logs that I picked up, but I don't. Those ones aren't very long, um, so I don't know if I'll be able to get any use out of those immediately. Those right. ones, I think, I'll have to mill. And the, the my milling setup, it, it it takes a while to get it to cut through something. Well, ultimately, the legs are going to be, you know, at most, what, 36 inches. Um, and that's pretty long. Um, that would be a really high workbench. But as, a, as you're rounding up, um, you need about a three-foot log segment. And that also happens to be something that is relatively easy to rive. Um, you know, get a couple of wedges to start it, split it in half. Now you're talking, um, what would you say, 18 inches diameter around there? Yeah, on the smaller so, side you know, factor out the, the, the cambium layers and things like that. And you split it in half and you're going to have about, you know, an eight inch section. Um, you can then rive that half into quarters and you're going to be pretty close to legs at that point. Um, grab an ax or a draw knife or whatever to strip the bark off, um, Mm -hmm. get in past the cambium layer. You're going to have a wedge shape that is, you know, probably around, six inches, you know, on two sides, um, worst comes to worst, you split it in half, you split the log segment in half. Um, and you, you ought to be able to at least get, I would think four legs out of that log. If you're talking about 18 inch diameter, uh, especially if, if you do go all the way down to two or four by four, I say, if you can get a bigger block than that, don't waste the effort, you know, <laughs> no reason to remove more wood than, than is necessary. Mm-hmm. But Right away, I think you, I mean, first of all, free wood, <laughs> you know, you have the logs already. Yeah. Um, the the exercise of, of splitting them and riving them and, you know, just turning that wedge shape into a square cant would actually be quite fascinating. Um, 
certainly will learn a lot about how the wood works. Um, the fact that they're green doesn't bother me in the slightest. Um, you know, the, the, the wood of most workbenches, most workbench design is perfectly fine with something that's going to be a little bit wetter. The only thing that you maybe want a little drier is the top. Um, and if you're going to be sourcing the top from a, from a sawmill selling kiln dried material, that won't really, won't really matter. So if you assume you can get four legs out of your ash logs, um, that's three species. Maybe you choose to make a different leg, <laughs> a Franken leg or something. Um, so what that leaves you with is your aprons, which could be kind of a showpiece. Um, you know, what you're talking about there is, is a, a wider board, or if not a board, you're, you're going to glue up um, a couple of pieces to make that 12 inch wide apron. So that could be licensed for some creativity. Um, if you wanted to, uh, I don't know, get crazy and do a book match or do two different species, but that's, that's kind of entirely up to you. Or what, what's your, what's your thought here of adding five species? Is it just to get exposure to five species or was there any particular like reason for having a different species on the apron or whatever? Is it what's in your head there? mostly to get more exposure to different woods? Because um, okay. like you had said before, functionally, just about anything that I pick is going to do just fine. So why not try something new and figure out if I like it? And if I don't, then I've only used one piece of wood and I don't need to come back to that later on to another project. No, absolutely. I mean, that was one of the things um, when I started turning, uh, because turning blanks are you know small and therefore somewhat affordable, I was able to get exposure to some crazy woods that there's no way I could ever afford them in board form, you know, but I could buy a pen blank or a pepper mill blank and get exposure to something like Bacote. And I learned a lot about a variety of species and, and the different um, genre and how they related to one another. Um, there, there's a lot to be said about that. So aprons, you know, they're going to play a major role structurally, but again, because they're 12 inches wide, you know, the, the force that's acting upon them is going to be down certainly, but then also kind of diagonally and along the length to control racking between the legs. Um, functionally though, you're going to drill dog holes in the front and there's a lot of work holding with holdfast that happens on those front aprons. So again, choosing something that would be too soft might cause deformation over time. That would be a bit of an issue. Um, you know, a harder wood is just going to wear better um, right up front there where you're drilling all those dog holes and, and, and using holdfasts or any number of things that could get, you know, for lack of a better term, bolted onto the front. So you eventually add a, a face vise. Um, having a kind of a, a more durable species in that apron would certainly be of benefit there. Hickory is going to be fantastic. Pecan's going to be fantastic. Any of the maples, especially if you had, like if you used, chose hackberry on the front apron, and then blend it into like the maple front half top. You mm -hmm. could actually orient the cream. Well, it depends on the hackberry you get, but most of the hackberry boards I see, they tend to have kind of that creamy color and then like a, a, a stripe of gray that runs through them. Some of the spalting may be a little bit more kind of camo pattern looking, but a lot of times I find that it's not actually spalting, but staining. Um, if you listeners go back to the episode I did on fungus and mineral staining, it's, it's more of a stain than, than a spalt. Um, spalting to me, a lot of times is very hard lines. Um, 
camo pattern comes to mind because it's it's a kind of an organic looking pattern where staining tends to actually gradually change color from light to dark it's not such a hard you know hard and fast line in in the wood like that so i think you could actually be kind of a cool gradient effect to to use hackberry on a front apron like that i think i would stay away from the cedars again just because of hardness because the bench is a, is a balanced design so if you're going to use different species on the front apron than the back apron you want them to at least be you know durable so that one's not going to start racking while the other one stays steady if you mm. follow me there yeah um i'm probably overstating that a fair bit but uh talking to an engineer here so i have to <laughs> i have to cover all my bases to make sure yeah. that <laughs> make sure i don't um, pounce on you <laughs> <laughs> uh let's see um are there other species i'm forgetting here i mean certainly walnut I mean, that to me is one of my favorite woods to work by hand. Um, so if you haven't had exposure to walnut, I think if nothing else, you could get it and use it for stretcher material. Um, you know, get exposure to, to sawing tendons in that. You could also use it as an apron. Um, it's certainly going to be hard enough to be able to deal with that. And I don't think the dark color is going to make a difference on the apron. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What, what, what are you thinking so far? We're putting together this hackberry maple hickory ash <laughs> workbench frankenbench sounds kind of interesting yeah so far i'm liking doing the the silver maple on the front um tabletop oh. and then hickory on the back tabletop i'm still trying to figure out on the aprons what i'd want on that one because what do you think about ash for the aprons sure i mean here again um it will stand up to the beating that it takes, you know, using holdfasts and things. But the apron again is, um, you know, it's a highly visible part. So you want it, you know, from again, we're talking woodworkers workbenches. So we want them to be pretty. Let's just get past that. You know, people say, Oh, it's just a workbench. Who cares what it looks like? Every woodworker I ever know cares what it looks like. So let's, let's just get, if people can complain all they want, we're going to bling this workbench out durability wise. No problems there. Um, it is a pretty e. No, I don't want to say easy wood to work. I mean, it is a hard hardwood, um, but it's predictable. Um, its structure won't throw you for a loop or anything like that. So, in this instance, there's not a whole lot of work to be done to it. There's a little bit of shaping on the aprons. You know, cutting off the corners and planing down those corners. Um, certainly, jointing the top edges and getting them coplanar with one another. So there's a there's some hand planning that needs to be done. Boring through it, uh, it will teach you how to sharpen an auger bit. I can tell you that much. Um, having bored the uh, the dog holes on my ash bench for many years now, um, every time I bore a new one, I end up having to sharpen an auger bit by the time I'm done. I think that in and of itself, as a learning experience, is a good excuse to use it. To tell you the truth, what other parts do we have? We've got the the, you know, you're going to end up cutting couple of bridle joints four bridle joints um four mortise and tenon joints um for the stretchers and then a whole bunch of of half lap joinery for the braces you'll have nine different half laps to cut for the braces um all of those will essentially be unseen so i mean heck you could throw all manner of species there um and you don't need very much so this could be possibility for you know if, if you don't want to spend the money you could do some of the, the logs that you have um, just picked up because they don't have to be very long. 
Um, the braces don't have to be very long. It's like 20, 24 inches, I think, from front to back. You know, round up to maybe 30. The stretchers themselves are quite short. Plus tenons on each end, so one inch tenon on each end. So you need 16 inch long board for your stretchers um, between the legs and for your bridle joint pieces up top. So round up, go to 20. Um, so those short pieces, that could be a golden opportunity. If any of these mills have like a, an off cut section or a bucket board section, a lot of them tend to have these large bends with just random stuff stuck in and off cuts and things. And if they, they don't have it immediately available, you might ask total of four stretchers and three braces you could you could each one of those could be a different species you want some experience because what we're talking about is cutting tenons on the on the on the stretchers and cutting half laps on the braces so there's there's sawing and chiseling joinery needing to happen there that could even be an opportunity if you wanted to try out a cedar you know what we're talking about structurally the braces are truly stretching um holding the aprons apart stretching them apart so the technical property we're talking about there is compression strength which is the force along the grain along the long axis of the board it's the strongest property of wood even in something like cedar it's going to be so ridiculously more than anything you would ever need so that can actually be a great place um and if they already have four by fours then the only milling you have to do is cross cut it cross cut it to length and then saw out that half lap and that actually would be kind of nice it's a good good use for it there yeah. Um, what kind of pine do you run into at your? Um, you know? Oh, I know. I looked it up earlier. Let me see if I can find if I wrote it down. I think it's the lodgepole. I think it's ponderosa pine. Ponderosa. Okay, that makes sense. Um, yeah, because I, I they said that they have five by fives in that, so that'd be a little bit more beefy of a leg. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, I mean. The, the legs, I'm just kind of automatically going to the ash because I know you already have some. Um, and I personally just think splitting it out would be kind of fun um, to create those. But yeah, I think well, if I get those ash pieces, I think I'll, I'll make the, the legs out of ash and then maybe those um, cross beams, I'll try something different. Right. Like the, the cedar maybe. Yeah. But I mean, the, the legs are another instance where um, really any species would work because here again, we're we're talking compression strength at that point, straight down on those legs. And then any dog holes you may drill on those legs, um, they're, they're really not going to get that much stress. And they're backed up by structure, the, the tenons, um, the, the stretchers that move between them. And each one of those legs has a bridle joint at the top and a tenon six inches up from the bottom. So they're like ridiculously rigid once they're joined together in this kind of closed box shape. So um, there's a lot of species that would work there. So I, I think actually those those stretchers and those braces is a golden opportunity to really play and experiment with different species. Um, even if, you know, depending on how much work you want to give to yourself, I mean, even if you can only find thinner, say four quarter boards, you could get some practice face laminating boards together to make a thicker piece. Um, there's all kinds of it's all kinds of interesting stuff that will puzzle future museum curators when they take the top off and they see you've like glued together three species to make a brace. I'm like, what in the world was this guy thinking? What was he smoking? Um, yeah, it came across my mind because I didn't know before I had asked what they, if they would have very many four by fours. How how would you glue up uh, a board that would be cut into a tenon? How would, would you ever do that? Or would that be a bizarre idea? 
Oh, so you mean forming the tenon by laminating different boards together? So like the, the board. No, of the- so, so, so laminating two, um, two boards to get a four by four and then cutting a tenon out of that end. Oh, that's fine. Think of it. Think of it. Once the board, once the board is glued together, think of it as one board, assuming your glue joint is good. You know, if you, if you've got a good glue joint that can be closed up with, with, you know, minimal clamping pressure, I like to say with hand pressure, um, you're going to get a fantastic glue bond. And I think tests have shown us left and right that modern glues are stronger than the wood itself. Actually, there's a lot, there's some testing that shows that high glue is stronger than the wood itself. I mean, high glue is what we use to etch glass. So, I mean, if it can chip glass, it's, it's strong. Um, actually, I shouldn't say that. There's some pretty weak glass out there. But um, yeah, I, I always think of it as once you have glued that together, treat it as a single board now. Um, yeah, like the, the best way to fix a loose tenon is to glue the tenon cheek on that you just cut off. Like if you overcut the tenon and suddenly it's too, it's too skinny and it's loose in the joint, that tenon cheek that you just threw in the trash, dig it out of the trash and glue it back in place and you can recut the tenon again. So yeah, glue and, and panel joints and face joints, it's kind of like the do over button. Um, there is a, a technique where say you have three boards that you're gluing together to create a thicker piece and you leave the center board. So, you know, the, the creamy filling of the Oreo, leave that long, um, and, and specifically laminate the two flanking boards so that you actually form a tenon. Um, Christopher Schwartz talks about this in his original workbench book. And in my opinion, that's way more trouble than it's worth. Because <laughs> the boards can obviously slide around once you have glue on them. So they end up using like nails to register them to keep them from sliding. And it's just, it's so much easier to just glue up one thing, mill it as a square board, and then saw out the tenon, in my opinion. So if that's what you were suggesting, I would urge you not to. <laughs> It's just not. What if I did walnut on the outside on that and then maple in the middle? It would look like an actual Oreo. It would. Yeah. (laughs) You could just call it your Oreo workbench. Um, You know, the other thing, the other part that we haven't actually talked about in this design is the planing beam. So it's a split top um, and there is a, a, a center beam that actually fills in the gap between the split. And there's a series of notches on it that you can set it up at different heights to use it as a planing beam to work. Um, directly across the grain on a board. Uh, it also can actually double as a tool well. Um, you can remove it and use that gap as a tool well, or you can actually cut notches into the board. That is another opportunity to have um, like a racing stripe down the middle of your bench. <laughs> if you've got a, a walnut and, and maple top, mm. or you've got a maple and pecan top, you could use walnut as your planing beam strip and have that dark brown strip right down the middle. There's a whole other whole other species there hmm. species i had not thought option. about that um and certainly that is a board that could actually get a fair amount of abuse um, because you're you're butting boards up against it and planing into that and you know no matter how how low you set your planing beam you're always going to run into an instance where you end up planing into the board um and if you chose a, a particularly soft wood there it's going to splinter up on you you want something that's you know you want a good hardwood there in that instance so there's a whole other piece that um, that I wouldn't necessarily worry about too much right now as you're getting started because that gap, you don't really know what that the dimension of that gap is going to be until you've actually got the bench built. 
you can guess and you can do math and say mm-hmm. it's going to be one and a half inches. And I can almost guarantee you that it won't be by the time you get to that point. So you're better off, you know, grabbing the actual dimensions on that, that gap once you've actually put your top in place and then going from there. Cause you might actually find that, you know, I need a, I need a much thicker piece here. And that could actually determine what you, what you choose based on what's available at your, at your local yard. And I was going to ask on that planning bench, do you think it's more important to have hardness or sheer strengths on, on that particular piece? Cause those are the two modes of, of failure that I think of. Cause you know, when you're pushing up against it, you obviously want to have a hard face, but you're also essentially shearing that board. Do you think one over the other needs to be stronger or I'm going to be fine in any scenario? Well, what makes you say you're shearing it? Cause the shearing strength of wood is, is you think of it as planing. Um, as you plane the board, shearing is pulling up that that shaving as you work along the grain. So shearing strength as listed by, you know, Wood Products Laboratory is referring to that force, how how resistant it would be to, to pull up a shaving, in other words. Mm-hmm. So the planing beam, I don't really see, I mean, you might be planing across it from time to time, but that's the weakest direction of the grain. So um, what's what's your understanding as an engineer who knows what they're talking about of shearing? I look at it kind of the the extreme. So if you put a planing beam on there that's maybe only like, you know, a quarter inch thick on, on one extreme and you're pushing it through, you know, it it would just snap as you push the board through it. But on the other extreme, it's, you know, really, really thick. It's, you oh, know, you're okay. going to be denting, denting the surface instead of just pushing through and just popping through that board. Got it. With, so, so what you're your talking about you're is really um, modules of elasticity how stiff it is, how much deflection will you see? Um, you know, if you've got a, uh, the planing beam is up and say it's up an inch above the top of the bench and you've got a board that you're planing, um, say across the grain. So you've got it butted up against that planing beam as your, as your fence behind it, which is great because it fully supports the length of that board that you're planing. As you push the plane across the grain of your workpiece, you're causing deflection on the planing beam. So the first thing is, you size the planing beam to perfectly fit the gap so that the board itself can't deflect. Um, the board itself is being held in place by the back half of your workbench top. Um, certainly there will be some deflection where the board is above the workbench, but in most instances, I don't think it's ever going to be above the workbench by more than about one and a half inches. And then your gap is going to be at least that the design of the workbench is that there should be at least a one and a half inch gap. Um, now you're not using construction lumber, so you're not working with pre-dimensioned sizes. So you could end up with something thinner than that. I wouldn't, um, because you do want some thickness there. You know, to use your example, if you had a quarter inch board, then yeah, there's, there's a good chance of that possibly snapping, um, as you put uh, pressure against it. I would think you would want that gap to be no narrower than one inch. And I would really lean towards one and a half more than anything else. Um, if you can get a full, yeah, two and most gap. of their stuff from this lumber yard is uh, nine quarter. Oh, yeah. So it's probably going to err on the side of a little bit bigger, I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can always plane it down too, um, to a thinner bit, but so that particular piece, I would, I would say, I, really, I would say at minimum, it should be one and a half inches at that dimension. 
you're not going to have any issues with deflection um, or or um, snapping off. You know, if there's a if there's part of it raised above the top, um, you're not going to have any issues there, um, even if it were a soft wood. Because that's the other thing is um, that planing fence, that planing beam really won't get uh, a narrow piece pushed against it. I mean, there's, I suppose there's possibility you could actually turn a board so that the ingrain is butting into the planing beam if it's a short board and you're planing there. Um, but I, I can't imagine you would be getting, uh, put it this way, the Jenka test is going to be a much smaller surface area as a half inch, you know, diameter balls pressed into the wood. I, I don't think you would be running into situations where you would be pressing something really narrow into that board that could cause a depression. You know, you're planing, if you're traversing a board with a hand plane and that's a, you know, a 12 inch long board or an 18 inch long board, you've got 18 inches of wood pressing into that beam. You can imagine the force required to cause a dent along 18 inches. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it would matter what species you would put up against it at that point. It's going to be durable enough to, uh, to, to take it. So any other questions about chopping for this bench? I think, I think we're, we're getting a Franken bench coming into focus here. Um, what else can I, uh, can I help you with? Well, the other thing that I was looking at adding to it was practicing some inlays on the tops as well as the aprons. Okay. So I was, I was planning on doing, you know, maybe on the tops, you know, a small, maybe three by four inch, you know, state of Nebraska. Um, and then maybe on the aprons, you know, in Nebraska and mm-hmm. I know that hurts you inside, but I'll get over it. I'll probably be <laughs> well, as long, as long as I don't fill it with epoxy, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, speaking of not durable, that, that's auto banishment from the hand tool school, right? It's just not durable. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, the beauty of inlays is now truly the sky's the limit. So, you know, if you want to stick with a locally sourced type thing, that again would be, I would seek out any kind of off cuts or, or, or smaller piece type woods that, you know, you really either couldn't find in a larger piece or couldn't afford in a larger piece. Um, but it also can be an opportunity to, to seek out someplace like Bell Forest products, you know, and, and do a mail order because mm-hmm. what you're talking about is a small piece that's very easy to put in the mail, um, you know, for, for an inlay or something like that. So that could be, I, I actually would encourage you to go beyond locally sourced at that point and really give your chance, give yourself a chance to play with something totally different. A jungle wood could be pretty interesting there. Um, inlays, if you're, if you're putting into the top of the workbench, you want it to be durable. Um, you don't want it to be super, super soft. Um, if you're doing it on the apron, I don't think it really matters. But uh, here again, I think the smaller you get, the more, like the smaller the inlay is, kind of the harder and more structurally sound you want that to be. So imagine like cutting like a butterfly spline. Um, and that butterfly spline is, is maybe three inches long. At the narrow part, like in the center of the butterfly, it could only be a half an inch wide, a quarter inch wide. So you want a, a pretty hard, pretty durable 
wood at that point because the smaller you get and the thinner you get obviously the easier it's going to be to crack and snap or things like that and inlay you're not going to you're not going to want to inlay a one and a half inch thick piece in there you're probably going to be inlaying a quarter inch or an eighth inch thick piece into the top um if it's a workbench you might want to go a little bit thicker because you may be flattening it over the years Um, but even then i couldn't see inlaying something thicker than a half an inch that's just excess work um because you've got to you know recess you've got to cut a recess that's a half an inch deep um, at the same time so um i think that's an opportunity to head to your local woodcraft we rock don't have any of those nearby i don't unfortunately <laughs> yeah i didn't didn't think they went out that far you'd have to go to denver i think that's probably your closest one um but yeah that's a great opportunity to hit ebay you know go to any of the online retailers there's a uh, an online retailer up in Oregon uh, called Cookwoods that I've used a fair bit, and they have all kinds of crazy stuff, um, both domestic and exotic. Um, and that's that's kind of like what I was saying when I started wood turning. It was an opportunity to play with stuff that there's no way I would ever be able to afford it um, in board form, let alone source it in board form. You know, it just came in smaller pieces. And if nothing else, you you buy yourself a you know a turning blank or something like that, and you can use it for all kinds of projects in the future as well. <laughs> So yeah, go go crazy at that point. I would actually encourage you to go beyond your local sawmill because you can, because <clears throat> it's a lot cheaper to mail order something um, that's a, a so small. What, what do you think would size. get a nice bright red color that would that would still be hard? Uh, Bloodwood, uh, Masser and Duba, also known as Bulletwood, uh, Paduke. Paduke's gonna tend towards oranger. If you want Nebraska red, Bloodwood. Um, Bubinga will get you there. Um, I mean, aromatic cedar, but that's a little too pink and very soft. Uh, Locally, domestically, there's nothing really bright red. Um, To get bright red, you got to go abroad, I think. Um, South America. Uh, and, And really, to me, Bloodwood is... The ultimate in deep red, nice fire engine red. Um, Bobinga can be. Bobinga also can have some purplish tinge to it as well, um, and a little bit more graining than something like Bloodwood. Masser and Duba. Um, it's really easy to find in decking. Um, so it's, you can't find it in in like rough sawn lumber as much, but that really wouldn't be a detractor although the problem with finding it in decking is then you have to buy a whole decking board um, and that stuff is really hard like i wouldn't recommend using it for anything other than a small inlay because it's really a pain in the butt um, something a little bit more grain to it be something like grenadillo um, that has some nice red but also some kind of purpley colors into it so uh yeah i i still would go probably bloodwood although paduke will be easier to find um then or well there is a, a species called red heart some people mix up bloodwood and red heart um like just because of the, the the you know whatever the the marketing name on it um but either one of those species are going to be pretty red pretty consistently red too without a whole lot of um kind of striping or any any additional graining in them okay that's a lot of good options oh yeah it's the world of wood. It's fantastic. So many different things you can go for. So uh, what do you think? You think we got a workbench you can build now? 
Yeah, I think it's doable. Well, I think, I don't know. I mean, this this is an interesting one because the fact that we're freed up structurally, we don't have to really worry about some of the bending strengths and stuff like that. It really just allows you to to play around. And I, I kind of like the idea of, of ex, you know, using your workbench to experiment with a bunch of different species. Um, and especially if they're going to be species that you're going to be able to find regularly. I mean, there's something to be said about building this real showpiece out of crazy species um, that one time, uh, but then who could ever afford to build actual furniture out of it later on, or you may never be able to get it again. So I, I really like this idea of certainly locally sourced is warm and fuzzy and feel good, but you know, this is going to give you a lot of experience that you can kind of carry forward into that table or chest of drawers that you may build next year or 10 years from now. So it's a neat idea. I, I applaud you for giving this a shot. Cool. Well, it'll be a fun experience. Folks, this is, this is particularly interesting. So I'm going to, I'm going to kind of throw this invitation out again. Um, certainly there's a lot of discussion that goes on with projects that can be very personal, can be very dependent upon your own design sense or your own skill level or really what's available. But um, I think uh, anybody who is listening to this that has a project in mind, um, I would love to have you on the show. These are it's kind of fun. If nothing else, is an opportunity for two woodworkers to just talk wood. So, uh, Alex, I do want to say thank you for coming on. Also, thank you for just doing your homework. Um, certainly, this would have been a very different conversation if you said, well, I haven't been to any of my yards and I don't know what they have. Um, so I do appreciate you um, taking the time to do some research and, and figure out what you can get. And again, I applaud you for going down the locally sourced train. I think that will be definitely serve you well, serve your kind of woodworking knowledge bank well over the years. So uh, good luck with the whole thing. Thank you. you no, know, now I can say now you need to go buy some hardwood. I do. Enjoy it. Thanks so much. All right. Thank you.